Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be with you again. I'm coming at you from, well, I'm coming at you from the closet of our spare bedroom because the coronavirus has forced all of us to get creative. What's the saying? Necessity is the mother of invention. Something like that. So we're all inventing new spaces and places. I'm looking forward to talking with you more today about what I've been calling the texture. Uh, that might be the tohu vavohu, the gap, the uh, life versus anti-life um, that we've begun to talk about in the first episode that was split up, uh, 1 and 1A. And we're going to keep talking about it because there's so much depth to mine there. It's been so helpful for me. And as we do, I think you're going to hear uh, from Peter Rollins today, probably more than anyone. I'm not sure I'll get anyone else in on this particular episode. Uh, but you can find out about Peter at PeterRollins.com. Um, he's a podcaster, YouTube, YouTuber. He's got a Patreon account. You can follow and support him there. He's got several books, books like The Idolatry of God, The Divine Magician. Uh, one is called Insurrection. I think there's a couple of others, but all of those have really served me well. They've helped me to kind of navigate life differently over these last five years or so. So I'm thankful for him and all the other guests. So I think it's just going to be Peter on today's episode, plus a lot of me, unfortunately for you, lots of me. All right, let's get started with yet more from Karl Marx. to abandon illusions about their condition is the call to abandon a condition which requires illusions. Thus, the critique of religion is the critique in embryo of the veil of tears of which religion is the halo. Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers from the chain, not so that man shall bear the chain without fantasy or consolation, but so that he shall cast off the chain and gather the living flower. Karl Marx Okay, let's talk a little bit about the story that has typically been handed down to us in American Christianity. And the story has, ad has identified our problem beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve, more specifically Eve, of course it was her fault, when Adam and Eve reached for the fruit, they disobeyed God and they, they fell prey to the temptation of Satan. And the story tells us that before that happened, everything was perfect. And at that moment, imperfection was introduced into the world. And so now the rest of the story is about us trying to get back to perfection. So I break with this fundamental understanding. I'm not the only one, but I break with that, which means I wind up breaking with most all subsequent understandings as well as things play out. Uh, first of all, I want to say, where did the serpent come from if things were perfect before Adam and Eve sinned? I hope you see how that's illogical. And I think I have at least a decent guess as to what the serpent might be. But before that, I also break with the fundamental understanding that I just explained to you, because I don't think we were born perfect. And again, I suppose that's self-evident because there was a serpent there. 
But I think the story already tells us that we were born in the midst of this, these Hebrew words, tohu vavohu, which if you've listened to the previous episodes, and if you haven't, I, I don't know where you've been, you need to get on that as soon as possible. But it means formless and void. It means this idea that there's potential for good and bad. It's like this non-ordered state, this sense of chaos that then the God of the Bible hovers over, spreads her wings and begins to begins to grow something and form something. It's a sense of life and anti-life, and I've been lately calling it just the texture of life. There's great lows and highs, and so the depth of all that makes me think of texture. But I think we come from that. I think that is a part of us. I think everything around us suggests that things don't necessarily work perfect in the sense that, again, the American Christian story has told us things were perfect. For example, with mathematics, and this might be the last time I ever reference mathematics since I am a terrible mathematician, but things like the incompleteness theorem suggests that at some point math just breaks down, which is <laughs> what I was trying to tell my geometry teacher years ago. But at some point, math just breaks down that you can't use math to get to a theory of everything, of proving why things exist and how they exist. Biologically, it seems like something's going on where things break down at some level. But that's basically just a part of life. Like Darwinianism tells us that life is constantly in battle with anti-life. But that growth comes out of that. Take a look at something like quantum mechanics, which is just plain weird. Eventually, our smartest people have to say, we don't know why things work the way they do. It's random and chaotic at a cellular level, and it's random and chaotic at a cosmological level. And then I think about things like art. So art, which of course this is a bit subjective, but art to me suggests that beauty, real beauty, is always flawed because the best art isn't perfect and flawless. The best art, to me, incorporates something tragic, something broken. And I think a great example of this is, if you want to jump on the internet and search Japanese art called Kitsugi, if I'm pronouncing the name right. But it's a type of art that takes broken things and then mends them. Like, for example, they'll take a broken piece of pottery, and instead of trying to, when they put it back together, instead of trying to cover up all the flaws, they'll accentuate the flaws by pouring gold or other some other kind of substance into the cracks and it just reinforces that this piece of whatever has been through something and the overall work of art can become more beautiful than the way the thing was originally. And then I think about things like love. Love is incomplete because love gives itself away. Love's been forsaken. It's vulnerable. So all these things suggests to me, you know, science and math and physics and biology and beauty and art and love, that everything has been marked by the texture and that the texture marks everything else. And that humanity grows with that and out of that and because of that. And it seems to me now, and I don't really know of a lot of people who are saying this, so I really could be off base, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyhow because I've banged my head too many times against the wall of my mind. It's like it's left a mark. 
And the mark there seems to have this pattern that points me down this road of saying that while anti-life is probably itself amoral, that the serpent, and now I'm back to the serpent piece, that the serpent might represent a thing, a type of deity, like a lowercase g god, that self-organizes around the anti-life in such a way that it gains a measure of influence and an ability to pull others into its influence. So there's this tohu vavohu that's existing, it's life and anti-life, God is a part of it, God was a part of it from the very, very beginning, and it may even be a part of God, this woundedness, this forsakenness, this sense of incompleteness itself, and that in the midst of all that, there's this thing that begins to self-organize, and it takes on something of a life of its own. And it's a part of all of us at some level, such that we were all born with a complex mix of good and bad situated deeply and profoundly inside of us. It's beautiful and motivating, but it's also terrifying to consider because much of it causes us to feel vulnerable. We realize how much we're out of control and we're not comfortable with vulnerability. I think that is a part of the Genesis, a better understanding of the Genesis story Like in the middle of all that, God says, it's okay. You've always been with me. Everything you've ever needed has been yours. There's no need to fear. Looking at it from this vantage point, it helps me to see that, yeah, there are unknowns and breakdowns and vulnerability. There are gaps, but but good comes out of gaps as well. I mean, synaptic gaps, uh, gaps in between quarks. These things create energy. How about relational gaps? that help us learn and grow. Uh, Gaps in music, those are called rests, and they're the foundation of music. Music would not sound beautiful without pauses and rests. So all this space and separation uh, creates anxiety, and it creates beauty, but it doesn't mean that God's not in the middle of all of it. What I think a healthier understanding of what's going on in Genesis 3 is, is that the serpent generally is that the serpent suggests to Adam and Eve, that's humanity and life in Hebrew, it suggests that God is not trustworthy and that this thing that is coalesced out of anti-life, this this power that is self-organized out of anti-life has developed a sense of influence and can tempt and can whisper into humanity's ear that God is a rival. Did God really say what you thought he said? Can you really trust him? The story is emblematic of all of us, and it causes us to overreach, to reach and grab for that fruit, which is just metaphorical for all of us. We're all trying to reach and grabbing for something to take control, which then brings about this guilt and shame. We want to cover ourselves up, cover ourselves up that nakedness is the vulnerability that we feel. And it causes us to locate this guilt and shame in this anxiety in the other person, which is the story of Cain and Abel, which are Adam and Eve's boys, of course. Cain kills Abel because he's jealous, he's envious of the relationship that Abel has with God. He doesn't see his brother as his friend, he sees him as his enemy. Then he moves off east of Eden and builds societies layered over violence and scapegoating, which becomes the massive problem before the Noah flood story. Violence is the problem. So in the, in the typical American Christian story, 
first of all, a lot of what I just said is not acknowledged. Secondly, from that point on, the rest of the story is about humanity trying to figure out how to get back to God, how to get back to the Garden of Eden, how to recover paradise, how to get to wholeness. And the way that that story is communicated, the path is, is actually sacrifice. It's through the sacrifice of grain offerings or blood, bulls, goats, sheep, whatever the case might be. And then the New Testament story is that Jesus comes along as the perfect sacrifice. His bloodshed is the thing that paves our way back to a relationship with God. And as Hebrews tells us, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, if you live under the law. But again, I I break with that kind of understanding. First of all, it's not a way back, because it was never perfect in the first place in the sense that we think of perfection. From the very beginning, there's been this sense of texture, both good and bad. And we were never separate from God, as I've said previously in other episodes. God was with us all along. So this whole idea of oneness and completeness and wholeness is, is actually misleading, and it becomes a form of idolatry for us, a way for us to try to use God to gain this sense of completeness and this oneness. So there's no way back. There's only a way forward, and the way forward for God has nothing to do with sacrifice. Jesus says that again and again. The prophets say that. David even said that before the prophets. This whole idea that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, and that God did not need the blood of his son to be shed in order to forgive us. That is the most absurd thing, that love would require death to hand out more love. Before I comment more on sacrifice, and actually I may not even get to those comments on this episode, and maybe for later, I probably should say that I'm not saying that sin doesn't play a role, but that probably we've too quickly tried to make a list of sins before understanding the condition of sin. And the condition of sin is the condition that says, well, we have the authority to make a list, to make lists of sins. The condition of sin says that we now know exactly every single sin to the point that we can make up these lists, and it blinds us to the other person. It causes us to pridefully put ourselves in front of our brothers and sisters. Sin is an issue, for sure, but I I don't think everyone is born a sinner. I, I don't call the newborn baby a sinner. I mean, do you have any newborns in your life? I've got a few in my life right now. I think the little boys that I'm thinking of in my family that are brand new little human beings, I don't call them sinners. I just think they're born in the middle of the texture. It's a mixture of all kinds of things going on, both good and good and bad. Hey, since I brought up babies, maybe I'll go off on a tangent for a moment. Do you realize that most of the evangelical church that believes in a literal hell would say something like the following, more or less, that basically that there's an age of accountability that is If a child dies before that accountability age, then that child will go to heaven no matter what. But that if after that age the child dies, they'll be judged by the decisions they made, whether or not they claim Jesus as Lord. Which is, in and of itself, is wild. First of all, no one agrees on what that age of accountability is. And secondly, if this were true, Wouldn't it be better just to kill the child before they reach that age so as not to take a chance? Because if that kid makes the wrong choice, they're going to hell for eternity. And the evangelical church goes on to say that the path to hell is wide. The path to heaven is narrow. 
So there's a really good chance your child's going to hell. Why not kill him before the age of accountability? Obviously, it's crazy. The point is I don't look at babies and say they're bad. I don't say they're sinners. I think it's way more complex than that. When you look at the text critically, carefully, honestly, you see it struggles to pinpoint exactly who we are. And ultimately, one has to admit that it says we are both honorable and dishonorable. Because we are honorable and dishonorable. And we're the ones who wrote the text. Which means the moment God allowed us to write it was the moment he allowed it to be filtered through us. Through all of who we are. So, of course, ultimately, it's going to send us mixed signals because we're mixed people. We're both corrupt and praiseworthy. If only I had a couple of cool quotes, one from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and one from James Allison, to help me think more clearly along these lines. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? James Allison says, and this is the genius of morals by story, rather than by laws or virtues. In the story, there are two positions, that of the victim and that of the expellers. Just as in the story of the prodigal son, there is the bad brother who receives forgiveness, and the good brother who never wandered and does not know of his need for forgiveness. And we don't grasp the force of the story, nor its exigency as a divine subversion of the human if we don't identify with the two positions at the same time. We're both good and bad. So sin is a part of the story, but not as a behavior problem. But sin is a condition that tells us we should demand that God make everything better, give us security, provide salvation for us, remove the vulnerability, fix everything. Here's Peter Rollins. This, by the way, is what sin is, right? Sin for me is not a theological category that's got, well, about being bad. It's not about being nasty or bad or chewing gum or drinking booze or whatever. Sin is a category of, it's original sin means original lack. So sin is just lack. And for me, uh, any attempt to fill the lack that we feel is, is sinful activity, whether it's having a kid, whether it's having money, whether it's working for charity, anything you do that tries to fill the lack is technically sin, as in it's destructive behavior for you and for others. I think it's true. We don't need to fill the lack. We need to acknowledge his presence, but recognize Christ has overcome and is helping us overcome as we go through the lack ourselves. Rollins goes on to say, At a very basic level, you, you can think of desire as an atom. And if you break the atom, right, in a big, <clears throat> what do you call those, uh, collider c- c- cylinders, mm, yeah. right, we, we smash desire, what we'll find is it's kind of made up of two parts. And uh, these parts can be called, and Lacan calls them, the object of desire, and the object cause of desire. The object of the desire is uh, what you want. So maybe I want a new house um, and I'm looking around trying to find a new place to live. So that's the object of my desire, that's very simple. But the object cause of my desire is a bit more complicated. The object cause of desire is what makes me desire that. And it kind of in a nutshell is the obstacle It's the thing that gets in the way of me getting the new house, 
that actually is the is the animating force. So actually, I love going online and looking at houses. I love going and visiting houses. Uh, I love saving up money to try to get the house. And actually, when I finally get the house, I have got the object of my desire, but I've lost the object cause of my desire because now I'm not going online, now I'm not saving up, now I'm not looking at houses. And so I no longer desire what I desire. I'm sitting in the house going, oh, that's a bit of a letdown, right? So in a way, in the relationships as well, there's the object of desire. Uh, so for an obsessive man, for example, who often desires uh, what they, what's impossible to have, so they desire someone who's unavailable. The object cause of desire is the woman's husband, right? That's the object cause that makes her desirable. So if she finally leaves her husband and they're together, there's a good chance that the obsessive man will lose the desire for the woman because the desire is sustained by what gets in the way. And because of this interrelation and this complexity, it helps us understand why we can be so depressed when we don't get what we want and melancholic when we do. If you think of depression as the sadness of not getting what you want and melancholy as the sadness of getting what you want, <laughs> we're, we're kind of caught in this weird, this weird binary. So that, that just in a nutshell is explaining those two concepts. In relation to Christianity, um, there is a, there's a connection here. And another example, and this might make it clear, is a kid is looking forward to Christmas and they are so excited about their presence and they're thinking about it all the time and they're wetting themselves and they can't sleep and all of this. Now, it's weird because it looks like they're suffering and they are suffering. They're, they just want Christmas. They just want Christmas. But you can tell there's a pleasure in the suffering. Uh, there's an enjoyment, but they're just not able to enjoy their enjoyment. They're not able to embrace the enjoyment because they think that the, the real happiness is up is up is on Christmas Day with the present, right? So in a way, the object of desire is the Christmas present on Christmas Day. And the object cause of desire is the month previous that kind of that you're not allowed to open the present until we get there. Now we all know there is a certain there is a certain uh, happiness in opening a Christmas present, but it doesn't match up to the potential pleasure of the waiting and the you know the, the expectation. And in, in our lives and in our society, we're always thinking that the pleasure is in the end goal rather than actually the pleasure is in this struggle and this ongoing antagonism. And a lot of what we need to do to be more personally fulfilled is to enjoy our inability to get what we want. But that's actually, it's the finding a cause that you can give your life to that is always unfolding and deepening and you're always failing to get to the end because it, it's something that so take my own work in parotheology parotheology is i'm always trying to define what it is and every time i try to define what it is i feel and so i have to do it again write another book or do another course but every failure actually deepens and develops the idea and i'll never get to the end of that process so, but, but that's where my enjoyment is. My enjoyment isn't in trying to get to the, the precise definition. It's, it's that journey of ongoing failure that actually generates a body of work. This brings us to, <clears throat> right, let, let's look at two types of religion that, that are very common, we all know. So there's religions of hedonism and religions of nihilism. Religions of hedonism, sacred and secular, 
or religions that say, we can give you the object of your desire, either in this life or the next, right? We can give you what your heart desires. Religions of nihilism are religions that say, we can stop you desiring. We can help you embrace the nothingness to lose your desire. And both of those are attempts to try to manage or get rid of the anxiety of living, the anxiety of what Kierkegaard calls the absurd, this absurdness of, I can't seem to be happy. I mean, Kierkegaard says, get married, you'll regret it. Stay single, you'll regret it. He says, you know, take one job, you'll regret it. Take the other, you'll regret it. <clears throat> he has this beautiful series of things where he keeps saying, like, do one thing and you'll regret it and do the other, it'll just be equally as bad. Um, now, what, what he's really trying to say, because of course, in truth, we, there's better decisions than others, but he's saying, if, if you do something in order to fix everything, it's not going to work, right? Whichever direction you take, the, old, the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, but, but these religions of nihilism and religions of hedonism attempt to get rid of that, that impossibility. For Kierkegaard, he thinks that actually Christianity is a religion of the absurd. It embraces that um, that interplay between not getting what you want and getting what you want and enjoy. By the way, joy is the name for the pleasure you get in not having what you want. So joy is, even C.S. Lewis kind of understood this, is um, joy is a type of, it's, it's, it's like the pleasure you get from, from waiting for your holiday rather than the pleasure you get from having the holiday, right? Um, <clears throat> so um, was it, oh yeah, so Christianity being the, a religion of the absurd, what does that mean? Well, in one way, it's very simple. Think of it like this. God is the object of your desire in religion. God is the absolute that you want to get to. And in Christianity, Christ is the obstacle, right? That has to be crucified to kill, to get to the object of desire. So Christ is the object cause of desire, is the thing you've got to get rid of. And then in Christianity, it enacts what's called the, coinc the coincidence of opposites, coincidence of opposites. Because what you find out is the object cause of desire is the object of desire. What's getting in the way of God is God. And that's played out in conversion as well. When Paul is trying to get rid of the Christians to get back to true religion, uh, he's trying to kill this group. They're the object cause of desire that are getting in the way of getting back to true religion. And in his conversion, he hears God say, My, you know, why are you persecuting me? In other words, God is in the obstacle that you think you have to get over to get to the thing that you want. This has huge uh, consequences. Um, I mean, this because again, we're, we're, we're lost in abstract stuff at the moment, but mm -hmm. I'll give you one concrete and then fire back to you. Like a concrete practical example of this is that a lot of people within the church, I, and I completely understand this, they think that if they're helping the poor or the homeless, um, they're, they're good news to the poor, they're good news to the homeless, or if they visit prisoners, they're good news to prisoners, right? They, um, <clears throat> it's like, and, and if you help the homeless, you can get help get rid of the home, homelessness and, um, you know, get to a better society. But from this notion, it's different. It's that it's not that you're good news to the homeless. The homeless are good news to you. Having a basic understanding of object of desire versus object cause of desire helps me see how easy it is for me to approach Christ like any other product. And that this is what the church has often unknowingly, with good intention, what the church has often taught us. And so instead of plugging that hole in our hearts with toothpaste or a new pair of jeans or a car or a new house or a degree or a relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, 
instead of doing that, because you know that that won't fill you, the church has said, you need to, you need to plug that hole up with Christ and you'll feel better. That's actually the thing. Except it doesn't work. Because when we're honest, we don't often feel better. Partly because that's not the point, just to feel better. Partly because it's idolatry. You're just using Christ and his sacrifice as a transactional fix. By the way, I'm going to talk about sacrifice and atonement and the reasons atheists get it right in the next episode or two. But Christ's sacrifice was not meant to be a transactional fix, partly because Christ told us to take up our cross too. I mean, if he was the fix that fixed everything, what would be the point of picking up our cross? So the idea is that we are encouraged, we're commanded even, to pick up the cross in the midst of the texture and to find for ourselves how love is with us everywhere we go. The Jesus story is the one where God is a part of all the texture, even to the point of our greatest fear, which of course is death. So when Jesus goes to death, we realize it's not a God-forsaken place. It's a place where even there, God can bring life. Love cannot be stopped, even in the place of our greatest fear. Stephen Levine says, Healing is to touch with love that which was touched by fear. And all of this is a critique of modern-day religions, Christianity and others. Though I don't know others as well as Christianity, it's more of my home base, so I'm more prepared to talk about it. And what does it matter? Who am I? Am I a prophet? No. I'm just a dude sitting in a closet in the spare bedroom recording this podcast. Someone who writes a little bit of music and has a few thoughts, leads a church, does a few other things. So take it or leave it. It's fine. But I think that most of our religions cause us to live in the condition that requires illusions. And so what I'm trying to do is to pluck off the flowers on the chains that weigh us down, but not because I want the cold, hard chain to continue to hold us down, but rather so we can throw the chains off and gather up the living flowers. Well, thanks for joining me in the closet today. (laughs) I hope this was meaningful for you. I know it helped me every time I talk about this stuff. It just helps me gain a little bit more clarity. And one day, maybe, I'll have a measure of understanding. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, Feel free to review, share, like, follow, whatever you want to do. And uh, I'm praying that during this crazy time that you're experiencing peace in the middle of all of your texture. God bless.